0: Welcome to Wine Thieves. I'm your co-host, Sarah Matto,
1: And I'm John Sabo.
0: This is the podcast where we go behind the label and meet the people and help tell the story of iconic wine-growing regions and lesser-known terroirs,
1: And drink lots of good wine. Welcome back to Wine Thieves. Today's episode takes us to one of the world's great Wine capitals, and I mean that quite literally. When the sun's rays light up Vienna and the temperature reaches that comfortable al fresco dining range, young and old flock from the city center to the capital suburbs at the edge of town. In the districts that surround the city, especially in the north, such as the 21st district and its historic neighborhoods of Strabersdorf, Stammersdorf, and Yedlersdorf, and maybe even more so in the 19th districts, Heiligenstadt, Neustorf, and Grinsing, rural meets urban in a setting that features these charmingly rustic wine taverns surrounded by the vineyards that supply them they're called buschenschank or more colloquially in in vienna heuriger which in the plural is heurigen as you know from your german sera and these are the original seasonal pop-ups the original farm-to-table restaurants operated by the vintners themselves and they've been a viennese and austrian tradition for nearly two and a half centuries
0: That's right. The advent of the Heuriger has a birthday. It was on the 17th of August, just past, well, it feels like it's just past its winter. It was on the 17th of August, 1784, that Austrian Emperor Joseph II issued a decree permitting all residents to open establishments to sell and serve their own wine on premise. This is the modern day equivalent of a brew pub license. Initially, no food could be sold, but over time, these restrictions lessened. Today, Heuriger range from the traditional, rustic, open-air taverns, open seasonally whenever there's wine available and time to sell it, to more elaborate, year-round, restaurant-like establishments. Though that convivial spirit and raison d'être to sell wine still remain. So Vienna's Urigen have become such a cultural institution that they were included in the National UNESCO Index of Intangible Cultural Heritage in Austria in 2019,
1: Just like the Argentine tango, one of those great intangible cultural, Mm -hmm. world cultural assets. So, Heurige is the abbreviation of Heurige Wein, which means, quite literally, this year's wine, the latest vintage in Austrian dialect. And it came to also mean the place where the Heurige wine was sold. Thanks to Joseph's decree, that still frothy youthful wine of the new vintage would be released on Saint Martin's Day, November 11th, which makes it, Sarah, by the by, the original nouveau long before Beaujolais. Passers-by would be alerted to open Hoyt again by a bunch of fir twigs hanging above the door, it was a sign that it is open for business, often accompanied by a sign that reads Ausgesteckt, which means quite literally "stuck out." Those fur twigs are stuck out. Also means unplugged, incidentally, but not in this case. The tradition of hanging fur twigs is still followed by many today, by the way.
0: So up until the late Middle Ages, grapevines were still growing within the Vienna city walls and what's now known as the first district, that's the heart of the city, now punctuated by the tall spire of St. Stephen's Cathedral. Now, as the city expanded, vineyards were slowly pushed to the outskirts, but Vienna remains the only European capital to have vineyard acreage of commercial consequence within its borders. John, I think Paris only has about two rows left at Montmartre.
1: <laughs> sad, little, sad little vineyard in that <laughs> it, is,
0: it is, isn't it? So just under 600 hectares are planted today to a wide variety of both red and white grapes. And like the food served in the Oediger, the wines and style range from spritzer-ready, pretzaporte, to haute couture of international class. C- very comfortable alongside Austria's finest.
1: Indeed, lots on offer, and of the many styles, the most traditional, emblematic wine of Vienna is the white wine called Wiener Gemischte Satz, which means, literally, the mixed set of Vienna. In practical terms, a Gemischte Satz refers to a wine made from a mix of different white grapes, all co-planted together in the same vineyards. So not a blend that you make in the cellar, but a blend that comes straight out of the vineyard. And Vienna is one of the few places left in the world where this ancient practice of planting multi-variety field blends, which was once the norm throughout all of the old world, and in fact in some of the oldest vineyards of the new world, it still followed. Most modern vineyards are of course planted to single varieties, monovarietal blocks. And today, Almost one-fifth of vineyards in Vienna are these field blends. And incidentally, we're talking exclusively white. There's no tradition for red field blends. But my question then, Sarah, is why did the field blends survive in Vienna and fall out of favor virtually everywhere else? One important motivating factor, as we'll hear from our guests in a moment, was the popularity of these wine taverns, the again, They were the place where this young wine was served on tap, and that was invariably gemischtesatz. Satz.
0: So it may just be proximity, John, and in very few other places is there such a direct and immediate connection between vineyards and where the wine is sold and consumed. So this is a fact recognized by Viennese city officials who moved many years ago to officially protect the city's vineyards from real estate speculation or development. Viennese state law now stipulates that vineyards in Vienna must not only be maintained, they must also be cultivated. So you can't even convert a vineyard to another type of agriculture. It's a move not just to protect the hybrid urban rural nature of the city, but to really preserve the centuries-old wine-growing tradition.
1: Imagine, Sarah, trying to pass a similar law in any North American city. I just can't ever see Mm. that flying. But no, in Vienna... They are very strict about that. So, we're going to hear from our guests shortly about the perceived disadvantages and advantages of planting field blends versus monovarietal vineyards. What you might expect from a bottle of Gemisch de Satz. We'll talk about the rise of vineyard-designated bottlings. And also, of course, the convivial, jovial atmosphere and comforting food of the Heutigen, among many other interesting things tidbits. It is, after all, surely the wine of Vienna that you'll be drinking on your next visit. I know it'll be on my next visit, Sarah. And Vienna Satz status as the flagship of Vienna was solidified in 2013 when it was granted its own DAC, the Austrian equivalent, of course, of an appellation, AOC or DOC. And on the technical side, to qualify, a wine must be made from A, a registered vineyard, B, it must be planted to at least Three different varieties and see they have to be harvested and vinified together. Now, the list of permitted varieties stretches to uh, almost 30 from my count on the AustrianWine.com website, and it includes well known grapes such as Pinot Gris and Pinot Blanc, Chardonnay Riesling, Gruner Vettliner, of course, Muscat, but also some of the more local specialties like Neuberger, Zierfandler, Furmin, Traminer, Rotgipfler, and Spätrot. So much fun to say those Austrian varieties. No variety can exceed half of the blend, while the third, and there, remember a minimum of three, must represent at least 10%. So that's the technical side.
0: Who needs to count sheep? We can, you can list all of those varieties before you drift off to sleep. Well, our guests today are Fritz Wieninger of Weingut Wieninger and Heusen Neumann, And Alex Zal of the Zal Family Winery. We'll let them introduce themselves and the respective histories. We reached Fritz in Neustadt, Germany, where he stepped out of a busy wine fair to share some thoughts with us. And we reached Alex in Massachusetts, where he was visiting his girlfriend's family before both returned to a locked down Vienna. (laughs)
2: My name is Alexander Sahel. I'm the fourth generation uh, hydrodynamic winemaker of a 100% family owned winery in the south of Vienna. Our family has been around in the south of Vienna for almost 500 years and um, they were actually well makers in the past before they started switching to agriculture, uh, mixed agriculture. And since 1930, we're 100% focusing on making wine. We started very small. Actually, the first two generations were uh, women, which kind of brought the winery after the First World War and then Second World War, um, saved the land, saved the house. And we started with half a hectare and a very small traditional wine tavern called Horigen in Vienna. And from there, we now, since uh, 2021, are 100% um, certified biodynamic after a damager. Um, we also have 33 hectares, 93 plots all over in Vienna and in the south of uh, Vienna. And yeah, our main wine style is the famous Gemischte Satz, which 85% of our total production is uh, produced of. And yeah.
3: I'm Fritz Wieninger. I'm the owner and enologist uh, or winemaker of the Wieninger Estate, Weingut Wieninger. Uh, the winery is located in the far north of the city of uh, Vienna, on the footsteps of the uh, Bisamberg Hill. Um, I also have a lot of vineyards on the other side, on the right side of the Danube, at the Nussberg Hill, with different terroirs. Uh, we are doing uh, about two-thirds white wines, mainly these days Arts, Wiener Satz, DAC, which um, was in the history and again developed to the number one wine uh, in Vienna, very traditional field blend style, as Alexander already, already described it a little bit. Um, I'm also doing a lot of Grüner Weltklinen, I'm doing Chardonnay, I'm doing Pinot Noir. I'm doing a wide range of, of different uh, styles of wine. Uh, more than 100 different uh, vineyards from super small to you're never really big sized. Uh, this is the typical situation in Austria, not just in Vienna, uh, where we uh, source uh, our also biodynamically farmed uh, grapes and make our wines out of uh, grown up, um, I was at the Heuriger. My parents did run a, a nice Heuriger here in the north, in the Stammersdorf, where I thought I don't want to step into that. I was much more interested in in wine. I wanted to bottle uh, fine wines and sell sell them to the fine restaurants of the country. I started in in the mid 1980s. Uh, at that time, Viennese wine was more uh, known as wine for spritzer, a simple table wine, mm-hmm. and I wanted to get out of this and show that uh, Vienna has wonderful sites and also the possibility to produce great wines out of that. Yeah, I, my whole life I worked on that, and I think the one or the other already... Found uh, these wines and found out that they are not as bad as the image 40 years ago.
1: (laughs) And you and you still run the Heuriger of sorts, actually a very high-end one with uh, fine food. In
3: the meantime, I came back to the Heuriger roots, and I am now almost half a a winery guy and half a restaurant guy. Uh, The one Heuriger from the family, my brother, does run. Uh, very Still very successful. In the meantime, I opened two places in the vineyards uh, at the Nussberg. Lots of young people love to come um, on the evenings, on the weekends, out in the suburbs, uh, climb up the Nussberg, have a fantastic view, sit down, have the wine that is grown around the corner, uh, have some simple food to eat, just bread and butter, uh, some, some ham, some cheese, and things like that. I tell you, it's crowded. Whenever the sun is coming up, whenever it's warm enough, it's super crowded. It's actually it's fantastic. I didn't plan this, but I'm happy that it happens. And the people, um, and especially the young, have so much fun uh, with uh, wine uh, from Vienna.
1: Now listen, a trip to Vienna for me is not complete without multiple visits to Heurigen around the city. For me, it's one of the, the great cultural adventures of wine uh, wine travel in Europe. So I think between uh, the two of you gentlemen, we have several centuries of history of wine growing in Vienna. And we want to look at a couple of different aspects, namely the uh, the field blend, the Gemischte Satz, and also the Heurige, the tradition behind that. But let's start out with um, the vineyards, because it's quite a curiosity. Vienna is really the only major European capital city to have vineyard acreage of any consequence within the city limits. I uh, would love you to tell us how the history, how this evolved, how Vienna was able to maintain its vineyards in the face of, uh, I'm sure, quite high pressure from urban sprawl. Fritz, can we start with you? Uh, how has Vienna maintained its its vineyards within the city limits?
3: well that was even before my time that the city of vienna found out that we have protect uh, we have to protect that land because a, ro- uh, a lot of real estate development was going on um, and lots of uh, richer people wanted to get some vineyards and build their houses build their swimming pools um, on uh, on that vineyard land and so the the city of vienna started to protect the land not giving any permission anymore uh, for buildings. And we had in the last decades to continue these laws and even made it, make it more strict.
1: Do you know when those laws were first passed in order to protect vineyard area from you development? The
3: newest law, which is like three years old, that when you buy a vineyard, you have to uh, go on working with it. Uh, you are not allowed to rip the vineyard out You're not allowed to stop uh, uh, taking care of it. Uh, If you do, of course, you cannot build anything. Um, But the newest thing is that you even cannot transfer a vineyard uh, in Vienna to an apple tree uh, field or something like that. That's completely uh, not allowed. And I hope and think this will uh, bring uh, the Viennese vineyards into the next uh, century into the next generations because there is one big wish I really have we have to protect our vineyard land we have to protect this heritage and we have to save it for the future and not uh, build it uh, with residential areas uh, or things like that
0: And Fritz, to that end, um, does this mean that the price per hectare is extremely high? And is there any more room for expansion for green space or for for vineyard?
3: Well, there is a little bit of um, expansion possibilities. There is still some agriculture in Vienna, even in uh, sites where uh, wine growing would be really good. Uh, especially at in the north at the Nussberg, but also in the south uh, east.
2: Maybe I can continue. But, um, there's quite a bit of agricultural land left. I mean, in the southeast for especially, which is the smallest wine zone of area uh, in Vienna, and that's also where we grow our uh, Reed Goldberg, the single Goldberg, which we sell quite mm-hmm. a bit of in, in Ontario, and it's in an it's, it's actually the highest ice terrace, so it's kind of a terrace which got formed after the glacier in the western part of Auschwitz were melting and brought all these kind of big round stones to Vienna. And it's it's a very special terroir there. And there's quite a bit of hectares left, around 70 hectares left, where you potentially could expand the wine-growing region. So that's quite interesting.
1: So the, uh, the 600 odd uh, hectares that are currently planted in Vienna are protected and yet there's still room for another perhaps 70 or 100 hectares to be planted. So we could actually see an increase.
2: Absolutely. We, we can see an increase. And I think that's also necessary because as you asked Fritz before, prices are going up and it's pretty much not affordable for young winemakers to buy land. Lease is still quite Inexpensive, So that's the only option even for us, even in our domain, we have uh, 95% lease vineyards because that was the only chance for us to grow actually the business because there was so much speculation going on in the past. And we are quite lucky that the Viennese government government catched up on that to kind of make the announcement to protect the vineyards and the lands that we not lose what we've already lost in the past.
1: So uh, disappointed property developers, but uh, happy (laughs) wine drinkers and tourists to Vienna. (laughs)
2: Absolutely, we have a bright future in front of us. Hopefully, knock on wood. Oh.
0: So, Alex, as to what is planted there, your Mr. Stats, if I'm not mistaken, makes up a fifth of the land under vine. So, would you be able to to talk us through what exactly is this field blend? Sort of the origins of it, and what grape varieties we can expect.
2: Absolutely. So uh, an Austrian or Viennese field plant in theoretical traditional was a way of uh, co-plantation. That means we people, generations before, planted different grape varieties within one plot without any system. Randomly, all together, and it needed to be harvested at the same day, all together, and then of course fermented together. And the main reason in the past was that we, as as I said before, my grandparents needed to live from one single plot, and it was kind of a crop insurance to make sure to get every year more or less the same amount of this particular vineyard, so that you can make your living. And the traditional grape varieties, what I know from my uh, grandparents, were usually in our vineyards and in the Viennese region. Grüner Veltliner, of course, some Burgundy varieties like Pinot Blanc, Chardonnay, Pinot Gris, and then some very local old grape varieties called like Neuburger, Rotgipfler, Ziervandler, but also Gewürztraminer. And as most of you know, Traminer is kind of a very old grape variety all over Europe. And there are lots of crossings and mutations which came out of that. So this is kind of the, the mixture of Gemischte Satz, which kind of each individual grape variety added some character to the wine, but never overruled the other. It was kind of a co plantation, co fermentation, the best possible individual characters formed together, create this unique Viennese style.
1: Alex, just on the theme of Gemischte Satz, which is the theme of the day here, I mean, field blends were once the norm across pretty much the entire old world. Monovarietal vineyards are really a thing of the last century, maybe even less than the last yeah. century. Why is it that they persisted in Vienna specifically? I know there are a few little plots here and there in other parts of Europe where you find old field blends, mostly old vineyards, but Vienna seems to be this uh, epicenter of preservation of the, of the concept of a field blend. Why do you suppose that is?
2: Well, I think uh, the main reason for that is that uh, as, as you said before, we have a long tradition of this Horrigan restaurant. And usually the, the open tap wine, so the wine served open tap in this restaurant was a gemischtasatz. And for that reason, people didn't change that as quickly. So when I would say in the 90, early 90s, when most people switched to more international grape varieties in Austria and as well in Vienna, those field plants were still not changed or replanted because it was still the wine needed for the Horrigan restaurants. And even... From my Mm -hmm. side, at our winery, we started with 100% field plants. So there was no chance, because they were totally randomly planted without any system, to kind of harvest one or the other grape out and make an individual wine out of it. So we had actually, the only chance was to market and produce this kind of style of wine. And that's why there was a significant amount of white field plants left in Vienna. Again, only white, because red field plants, as you see nowadays in more other regions internationally speaking like portugal port wine um even california and australia is not a long tradition austria and it's also not was never really a tradition in vienna
1: Interesting. I have to think, I mean, I know you did some uh, winemaking down in Australia and New Zealand, which must have changed your approach. I'm wondering what it was like for you when you returned to the family winery and vineyards. Did you look at those field blends and you think, oh, that's quaint, but it's a thing of the past. Let's move on. Let's get on with, you know, more modern type of viticulture, planting monovarietal vineyards. Or or were you uh, willing to embrace that past?
2: I have to say it was it was very difficult because I, I went when I was a teenager, I went to the oldest wine growing school in the world to north and west part of, of Vienna called Klosterneuburg. And there, whenever I started, when I was 15 and 16, going to these first wine exhibitions in Germany and France, and tried to explain gemischte satz no one knew about it. Mm-hmm. It was really frustrating for me as a young really focused and hungry teenager to sell my wine to be there for my for my family and no one was interested they were selling pallets at pro wine of gruner and i was trying to explain to Satz, and trying to explain what it is and they all were like we don't want this white blend from right. vienna and i said it's not a blend from the cellar it's a blend from the vineyard and it took me years and actually travel away to understand and come back that we have this unique heritage which we need to preserve and protect. And But honestly, I was almost two steps away from rejoining the winery because it was so difficult to sell. Chardonnay Sauvignon Blanc was so much easier. And nowadays, I mean, we have a 65% export uh, percentage. And actually in Japan, Sweden, the US, now Montreal, it sells suddenly.
0: Right, and and that tradition, I think, is is something that people look towards, is making it unique, you know, giving it uh, a certain uniqueness to the wines. I think we also have Fritz back on. Fritz, you're the co-president of Respect with Fred Loimer. You're also a founding member of the Wine Growers Association. I'm curious about Satz and its garnering a DAC designation uh, in 2013. What can you tell us about how challenging that was?
3: It was not so easy because not everybody uh, thought that this would be a good idea only a smaller group thought uh, this could be and should be the future uh, of wine from Vienna uh, to concentrate on our heritage of gemischter satz and so uh, we we went for this this was not easy in a democracy uh, system where uh, the majority always uh, wins when the majority is uh, yeah, not seeing the, uh, the the positive aspects of something like this. There Tell us, also, what were the, uh,
1: the arguments against uh, creating a gemischter DAC? What were the what were the cons?
3: Now, yeah, like um, I don't have ones, so we don't need it. This one was one <laughs> argument. Uh, another argument was the arguments of the universities and the wine schools. That uh, from uh, working a vineyard, it's much easier to have one variety because then you have one system of pruning, one system of spraying, one system of leaf work. satz uh, is too difficult. This is uh, something from the past. As somebody who is daily in the vineyard, uh, I only can say this is stupid. This is uh, arguments from somebody who doesn't know the vineyards and uh, yeah when you walk out and and watch your vineyards closely and go through a gemischter satz then you see that there is no problem if the flowering is uh, is not in one day or two days but in maybe 10 days uh, this is not really a problem this is just you work every vine different According to their needs and to their look, and no matter what kind of variety it might be, this is not really interesting. It's just important how many leaves there are, how long the shoots are, and so on.
1: But is that not then a more expensive way to farm if you have to go vine by vine, quite literally, look at one each one individually and treat it a little bit differently? No, I mean, it's that's no, also it's not. a technical challenge as well to, to teach people how to do this.
3: No, it's not because it's just a question of uh, the brain between the arms. Uh, it's You have to think about it, but it's the same speed of work. It's the same quality of work, and it's not more costly. Um, also, in a vineyard of, um, of one variety, as a single varietal vineyard, you have different vines. The older the vineyard gets, the more you see the differences. And also there, you have to think about the pruning. Is this correct for this wine, or it's, is it not? In a gemischter Satz, it's really wine by wine. And maybe a single varietal; it's a little easier, but it's it's not really complicated. If you work every day out there, you see that it is not complicated, and it works out without any problems. But one major reason for distance of a majority was. People dislike changes. People are used to a certain system. We do it like we always did it, and we don't want to have changes. Uh, This was probably the the number one reason for many to say, no, we don't want to have the Satz as our DSC, as our most important highlighted style of wine. We rather do like we always did.
0: But but your argument won out and now there is a, a DAC as of 2013. Can you speak to maybe yeah. some of the... Are there any other upcoming changes that we can expect?
3: Uh, we are facing a time with a constant, a stronger impact of the chemical industry, of, of different stakeholders. And we have to save... Uh, our land from uh, getting occupied by industrial interests. This this is very important, and for that reason, in the meantime, we all stand together. No matter if it's a organic uh, association or if it's the uh, meter, we all stand together and brought Austria to uh, the very forefront in organic and biodynamic work. Um, I'm not sure if it's this year the number one or it's the number two we always uh, change with switzerland Uh, one year the one is in the front the other year the other is in the front but worldwide the percentage of organic and biodynamic farming in total is the highest or second highest really in the world that's that makes us proud but also shows us that we are Uh, Not as important as we think or would like to have it because we are still a a minority and not a majority. And as I said before, in the democracy, always the 50% uh, and more is those that make the laws and uh, can do or think they can do what is the right for the future. So we have to work on that.
1: Well we're we're glad that uh, members of Demeter and and Respect can stand together and at least be on a podcast uh, together. <laughs>
3: <laughs> yeah, absolutely.
1: Right. Right. Yeah. I just. Uh, I mean, on the on the notion of uh, organic and biodynamic farming, which uh, both of you do, we've spoken a little bit about the disadvantages or perceived disadvantages of a field land, different ripening windows, different pruning techniques, and so on, which you've uh, which you've set it to rest. But what about some of the technical advantages, uh, Alex? Are there advantages, particularly in in regards to biodynamics, of having this biodiversity within one plot of land? Do you observe perhaps better disease resistance with different plants operating to assist one another rather than one single monoculture of one single variety.
2: Yeah, that's, that's absolutely true, John. Um, the, the main advantage what I see going now 50 years from now is probably to face global warming and climate change. Because what we started doing almost 10 years ago is to kind of plant more late ripening grape varieties within the field plants, adding Riesling, adding Tiofrandla, adding Furmint to kind of stretch the growing season, even in warm years to harvest at more or less the same point um, of harvest date and keep the style and alcohol level as um, perfect and possible and lower um, in our vineyards and the resulting wine. So that's one of the major advantages, I think, that with a field plant, you can adapt to global warming in a much better way than when you have a single variety wine on a single plot. Of course, also this co-plantation helps kind of to, even with being having different grape varieties, so together, exchange nutrients exchange, also extend the flowering time. And there are many benefits to kind of when you have a longer flowering time to attract more insects. And of course, that goes hand in hand with biodynamic farming, increasing biodiversity. It's kind of a regenerative agriculture approach from the soil when you start planting a vineyard until actually marketing the wine in an export market or having the wine, uh, the vineyard on a table and join with good Viennese or international food.
0: Alex, I, I heard that you your winery has refrained from using herbicides and pesticides since 1930, which is pretty an impressive length of time. Um, how common is that in Vienna?
2: I would say it's not that common in Vienna and Austria. Um, I think the the main symbol of our logo also should explain that, that we were always close to nature. The butterfly is a symbol showing this kind of diversity in the vineyard within our field plants was always very important for my great-grandmother and grandmother. And also at the time in the 60s and 70s where everyone used these chemicals because it was easier and after the war you needed to feed Europe. I think we were still small in terms of hectares and could do that. And I think that's what makes it easier if if you never use something to continue doing that. But I have to say there's some other colleagues of mine in other areas, lower Austria, which are also organic since 30, 40 years. So I think the only point of what we could have been a little quicker, go through certification sooner. But at the end, for me, it was more important to understand our vineyards and soils and terras first better before changing an entire production and going through certification.
1: I'm curious as to whether the DAC has succeeded in reversing the fortunes of field blends, I know many of them were, were ripped out in the past, and we know that there's some land still available to plant. So has the DSC created an impetus for new plantings of field blends, or has it just really preserved those that are in existence already? Fritz, do you want to take that one?
3: Well, there is a lot of new vineyards now. Uh, with gemishtersatz, there is a white uh a consensus that uh, this is our future, this is our identity, this is our most typical wine in the Vienna region. And well, I also have to say it is quite successful because the quality standards are high and people really care about what comes out of their vineyards, what comes out of their cellars into their bottles. Uh, And that makes it successful. So there is a demand to produce more. Vienna is not a big uh, wine region. It's it's not the smallest. It's the fourth smallest wine region in Austria. Um, And that means with 700 hectares, well, we could sold out very quick. And so uh lots of my colleagues uh planted in the last years as i said before there there were some wineries that did not have any satz anymore so they had to plant some uh, to be uh, in this wave of renaissance of the
2: wiener satz.
1: alex do you agree or would you replant now uh, as a field blend if you had some fields available
2: well i think uh, i see it in two different ways so, so this kind of um dec law pushed kind of in my opinion to to wave so the first is to preserve old vines of commissioner in our view so we really focus to kind of take care of the old vines the old system to kind of old single vineyards and make make sure we keep them alive and the second thing is that of course it pushed other wineries which didn't have that much gemishtesats to think rethink this kind of concept and start replanting using newer clones do kind of soil analysis to make sure which are the best possible grape varieties within that field plant and going away of kind of block plantation where they all mix it together. So to kind of have a more modern scientific approach to how in the future a field plant can produce unique and high quality wines in several uh, areas uh, within Vienna. So that was kind of in the long run a good thing that it happened. There is still many things to improve and protect um, to kind of yeah preserve this heritage and to make sure that in the future we can still produce and not sell out, or that's kind of, it's, it's to cheapen the brand. We always need to work hard together, every winemaker in Vienna, to make sure we protect our region and this kind of unique style of winemaking.
0: And to that end, these um, the vineyards are planted. Well, there are two main. I'd like to say sites that I would love for you to maybe walk us through. Tell us a little bit about the differences. Already, Neusberg was mentioned, but uh, Biesenberg was also uh, mentioned at one point. There, could you tell us maybe some of the differences between these sites?
2: Absolutely. Um, I think. Geologically speaking, Vienna is very diverse. So you have kind of different time zones with different uh, kind of soil structures. So in the north, you have more kind of a layer of uh, fossil limestone in the ground. And then in the southeast, you have more, as, as I explained before, gravel in the ground with kind of Less and sandy clay on top, and in the southwest in Maua where also our winery is located, you have a very unique type of limestone called the dolomite limestone, which has um, two minerals, so it's calcium and magnesium, and it's the same type of limestone you also find in the Dolomite Alps in Alto Adige. And on top of that, you have almost schist integrated within sandstone, and it's a special type of Venetian sandstone which got compressed over this limestone, a hundred million years. Um, and that's quite unique to have within 30 kilometers, so many different soils, and that's also shaping mm-hmm. and of course, the Gimishtesat. So it's, it's kind of each grape variety adds a different layer of complexity to the wine and each soil for the basic generic Wiener Satz DC, adds also structure to the style of the wine. And I think we have a great terroir and that makes our wines especially interesting and very food friendly.
1: But considering that diversity, I mean, it's diversity piled on top of diversity, geological diversity, different varieties. Mm-hmm. Everyone's got a sort of proprietary blend of, of different grapes in the field, different vine age. So that begs the question then, Satz DAC, can it be associated with a style or is it more just a combination of place and culture that's going to result in a broad range of styles? I mean, what, what would someone expect picking up a, a Satz DAC without much experience? What would they expect to taste in that glass? like to hear from both of you on that one, because that's, I think, an important question. But Fritz, you make a, a number of different single vineyard wines. How do you, how do you describe those to consumers?
3: Well, uh, that's not an easy question. I think Satz uh, uh, always points out uh, the appellation, the terroir, uh, the most. Uh, because there is not a variety in the front there is always uh, different varieties that play together and step one step back and let the terroir uh, step one step to the front so if we talk about appellation then i think gemischter satz is the best way to point it out and it is the question of the uh, of the wine producer uh, the wine grower, to plant the right varieties. As uh, Alexander said before, uh, you have to. You cannot just plant a vineyard like this. You have to be sure that you take the right rootstock uh, according to the content of chalk. Um, you have to be sure that you take the right mix of varieties for the soil. Uh, for example... Uh, Some of the the varieties are very aromatic. Uh, You should not uh, use a too high percentage of those. Some varieties fit better on chalky soil. Some varieties fit better on mineralic soil. Uh, This is the question. Uh, How can we point out the soil the best, the uh, appellation the best, to point to the consumer what what does he get well this is not so easy Uh, this can be uh, actually very different very much according to the personal taste and the way of thinking way of winemaking way of planting and many different personal things of the wine producer you know the wine producer, then you know much more about the wine. You don't know the wine producer, you might be surprised. It's not
1: easy. Isn't that There's always the case, one style. <laughs> <laughs> Well, yeah, listen, that's always a, the case. Let's They're pretend cool that Sarah up. and I are the other consumers. We've we've rolled into Vienna, and we're uh, you're sitting at your restaurant or your Heideg. Why don't you describe for us, say, three of your kind of uh, emblematic? Yeah wines and what we would expect to taste in the glass and then we'll get Alex to do the same say for three of his sort of flagship wines
3: okay the first well if
1: we stay with Gemischtersatz then the first would be
3: Wiener Gemischtersatz DAC without the vineyard name on the label which is the lighter version limited to 12.5 this is the wine we in Vienna drink like every day My wife and I, when we have lunch together with a little leaf salad or goat cheese or something, this is the glass um, we would accompany our lunch with. You stand up and uh, restart to work without any problems. Uh, Not too much alcohol, dry, crisp, and and fresh. Uh, Viennese love this style of wine. Uh, To step a little further, I would use Bissamberg uh, Wiener Gemischter Satz DAC. It's a typical uh, result of the Loess soil. Um, it's a gemischter satz of only three different varieties. Uh, there is uh, Pinot Blanc, Pinot Gris, and a little bit of Chardonnay. Uh, all three grow in this one vineyard and give a, we we say in, in Vienna, a Burgunder, like a Burgundy uh, gemischter satz. Um, It's very food-friendly. It's a wonderful wine with fish, uh, lighter, medium-heavy dishes. Um, It's a very good signature for uh, the Pisanberg region with its less-dominated soil. And the third would be the Ried Ulm at the Nussberg on the right-hand side of the Danube River, where we have really an extreme content of fossil limestone, a uh, very chalky soil. It's not so heavy like the rest of the Neusberg. Uh, the content of clay is medium high, not as high as, for example, uh, Preußen or further away from the Danube. That is a wine based on uh, Pinot Blanc, Neuburger, Weißer uh, Zierfandler, Rotgipfler, uh, partly uh, varieties. Uh, partly like Pinot Blanc and so on, international varieties that for very long are also found their home in Austria. Uh, this is a wine full of terroir, full of minerality, full of chalky notes, uh, a wine that really expresses the terroir of this Monopoly Cru, Ulm, very strong. And, uh, well, I, I'm i very happy to have that and be able to have um, so much uh how shall I say, a uh, unique uh, kind of wine that uh, is well-known with sommeliers in, actually in the whole world. Mm-hmm. Uh, that makes me kind of proud. So old.
0: <laughs> Thank you, Fritz. And and what about you, Alex? How does your Gemischtersatz differ? And can you tell us a, a, about a couple of other um, key bottlings of yours?
2: Well, I would say um, our generic DEC Wiener um is, is a field blend of several field blends of the three major uh, wine-growing regions within Vienna. So we have vineyards on the Nussberg, in the southeast, in the Oberla region, and in the southwest in Mauer, which we all blend together. So around 24 different parcels go into that generic blend. And therefore, as, as I can all, only totally agree with Fritz, is it's a very food-friendly, moderate in alcohol, um, usually on the fresher, crisp acidity side, well balanced with um, bone dry style, and it's it's a wine you actually cannot get enough. You drink it sometimes even in a light lunch, early lunch, up to kind of yeah late at night with several foods, and it, it's also a good a good recipe for different types of food in the world. And then of course, I mean, I, I would probably use another example of a very local old grape variety we produce and is quite famous also in the u.s and some other parts of japan and scandinavia it's a grape we produce in we're the only producer in the world which still produce wine out of it it's called an orange grape and this is basically not an orange wine it's a grape variety found in the rhine region and it's called after the slightly orange color when it gets fully ripe and this is also a unique grape variety we used to have in our field plants. That's why I wanted to mention that. And also grows Wait, very it, what's well. What's it called? In It's called orange grape. Or- orange, orange Traube in German. So the Traube means grape, orange grape. And when you look up Genesis Robinson wine lexicon, you find Seil as one of the only producers. And it also shows the diversity of the heritage of these old vine field plants within vienna and then of course the third style of wine i would mention is a single vineyard style of some terras in vienna we do are lucky to have the three major terras in vienna and have single vineyards there so our goal with a single vineyard name on the label means that it's very individual it has very old vine in terms of age and the more grape varieties we use in those old vineyards, the more complex and the more texture the resulting wine is. And of course, we have in mauer a Ried Setzen, which is very famous. We have in Oberla a Ried Goldberg. And on the Nussberg, we have vineyards Ried Preußen, Ried Kasram. And each of these single vineyards, I can only to the consumer say, please, if you back after this uh, Corona crisis, visit Vienna it's one of the most livable cities reach out Mm -hmm. and explore not only the generic style but also go to the more fine dining restaurants if if you're interested or drink it at the Hargut local producer and explore of this diversity of single vineyard winemaking this is absolutely a new thing in Vienna that there's so many single vineyard bottlings from so many different producers
0: well I I think we wholeheartedly agree on your message about uh, coming to Vienna and exploring it ourselves. I think it's a great way to finish off our interview. John, do you have any last questions?
1: I do. I think we'd be remiss to let them go without talking just a little bit more about the Heurige because it's such an important part of of Viennese and uh, and Austrian life. And for me, it's it's more than just a wine bar or a winery tasting room that happens to serve some food as well. It's kind of like part of the fabric Mm -hmm. of, of life in Vienna. So perhaps we could have you kind of describe what it's like to run and to visit a hoity again fritz do you want to start us off
0: oh no he's actually sorry i'm just noticing he's not on the he he must have dropped off so alex
2: (laughs) well then then i start first yeah i do have to say that this Horrigan restaurant is kind of the soul of, of the place where you would go in Vienna. It's kind of our French bistro or the Trattoria from Italy. I mean, it's it's really a place or, or kind of the tapas of Spain. It's a place without any white tablecloth. You just go in usually very old buildings with wooden tables, wooden chair and benches. You kind of hop on, squeeze in together. If there's not a table for only one guy, you just ask, come to close together and then just enjoy local food with local wine and talk about life. And it's usually the concept of a horiga is to have fun together. And it doesn't matter what you talk. It doesn't matter how you say things. It's just enjoy, have a good time uh, in the best possible way. And, and that's, I think the unique concept why it's still around because it's, it's easygoing, it's nothing fancy and it brings a lot of joy and it's, it's also inexpensive. So you can actually get some really good wine with really good food and with your best friends or family.
1: Now, I, I know when it was in, originally introduced in 1784, Heutigen served only wine. In my understanding, they didn't want to compete with restaurants at the time, but laws, of course, have since evolved. So what does the Heutigen license allow you to sell today and how does it differ from a restaurant license? Or is there any practical difference?
2: Well, it depends how how many days per year you're open and that also depends on the license and it's usually a, a border of a turnover to depend if you have a full license or just a, a kind of permitted license uh, in in some other parts of Austria you only with a smaller permitted license are allowed to have uh, serve cold foods but in Vienna usually a traditional Viennese harriger serves w- warm food as well like Vienna schnitzel or some meat driven dishes with some vegetables and potatoes on top and The main idea in the past was, of course, to only show, sell the wine and people brought their own food and enjoyed it there in the garden or at the tables. But nowadays, I think there are some restaurants which really developed kind of almost to produce from local suppliers with local organic meat and make kind of use old recipes from my great grandmother and grandmother to kind of make the best local food possible. And that's a new development what you see. It's not just a warm buffet where people chuck in lots of food and eat and get drunk. It's more like explore the individual style of each Horrigan. You can almost go to a Horrigan tour within Vienna and yeah, explore and enjoy different types of recipes of local spreads or meat and, and, and schnitzel and, and also have different styles of commis out So that's the more modern concept of the Horrigan. Less tables. Um, Longer stay time in the restaurant and not as much alcohol consumption.
0: At the Horrigan, was there not a, initially a tradition that um, emphasizing new wines, the, the wines of the new vintage were to be sold, or or am I wrong Ab- about that?
2: No, you're absolutely right. If you're familiar with Beaujolais Nouveau from France, they always mark in themselves: we have the oldest. Boujolais Nouveau young wine at the market. But that's actually not true. As you mentioned before, in 1784, we created that tradition for kind of St. Martin's Day on 11th of November to kind of launch the new vintage, kind of the first impression of the style of the new vintage at this local Oregon. And we also introduced this kind of tradition, of course, to Japan and our, the produce and sell their this original viennese herigger because they love to pick up on that tradition and it's now the number one selling austrian white wine in that price cor- category in japan which is also i think an interesting aspect of seeing how tradition can actually sell in the long run
1: and, and didn't you used to hang a branch outside an evergreen branch to declare to passerby's that you're you're open for business
2: yes it needs to D- this green branch from kind of uh, some oak-related trees. It's called Pinus Negro. If they're hanging outside and the light is on, it means that the horrigan is open. And this tradition comes because in the past, people were not opening all the time. So you open the horrigan and close it. And the reason for that is that in some parts of the month, you needed to work in the vineyard. And then you had time to also open the horrigan to earn some money to support the vineyard and of course life. And this, some Also, our Horrigan still has this tradition of opening and closing. And it's also an excitement for people because in the village where our winery is located, we still have nine remaining Horrigans left. And it's also kind of a fun kind of activity to go to different Horrigans in different months because they're open and closing. So it never gets boring, to be honest.
1: And you still hang a branch? Yes. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Yes. <laughs> <laughs> that must have been a great symbolic gesture during uh, COVID, right? When you're reopening or when you're allowed to reopen after the lockdown as well, it takes on a new significance.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we, we tried to do takeaway during COVID just to kind of hold on to some, um, yeah, some guests. And, and that was important to kind of have your, your local restaurant around because that's what the only thing What's I mean, it's It was probably the excitement for many older people that we could deliver to their homes and they got at least some joy out of the day in these very, very challenging times.
1: Uh, Listen, you've given us a a lot of uh, desire to travel to Vienna and Mm -hmm. do a Heurige tour and taste through the range of Gummistessatz from the the lunchtime wine. I love that uh, concept, right through to some of these single vineyard, much more distinctive wines. I think it's uh, a part of the world and a wine style that really needs to be discovered, rediscovered, more widespread. And, uh, well, I'm certainly a a big fan. And, well, we'll be back in uh, May if all goes well. Please do, yeah.
0: Oh, excellent. Well, we really look forward to that and um, wishing you the best. Thank you so much for being generous with your time today.
1: And please send uh, Fritz a quick little uh, note just uh, thanking mm-hmm. him if you wouldn't mind on, on what's happening. I happened. certainly will do that.
2: Yeah, thank Great. you so much for including the two of us. And yeah, I wish you guys also all the best and hopefully see you soon next year. And yeah, drink more Austrian and Viennese wine and stay healthy. That's the most important.
0: Yes, thank, thank you.
1: Vielen you. Dank. Take care. Bye. Bye. We spoke with Fritz Vinegar of Weingut Vinegar and Heisen Neumann, and Alex Zahel of the Zahel Family Winery, two important winemakers in the Renaissance of Vienna's flagship wine, Gemischte Satz, or Sarah, as I've heard it called by the more hip US and Canadian sommeliers, simply Gemischte. How cool is that? Huh? So much fun to say.
0: I love that. Gemischt. Perfect. <laughs> gemished.
1: Line me up a gemischt. Well, it's, I find it really fascinating that the, the city of Vienna moved to officially preserve and protect its agricultural lands, among them, obviously vineyards, I mean, you have to think that without such protections, Urban sprawl would have eaten away at the vineyards, and the great Viennese tradition of the wine tavern, the Hoya would have been lost, as well as, of course, Gemishta Satz. And I'm not surprised that UNESCO inscribed it in its cultural list of intangible assets. It's too bad for the property developers, but uh, kudos to the Viennese city officials for resisting the pressure and maybe even rejecting a thick envelope or two to preserve these vineyards.
0: Yeah, it's pretty extreme, though. I mean, if you can't even convert a vineyard to other types of agriculture, which Fritz mentioned, well, it's a tongue twister. So it's a move not just to protect the hybrid urban-rural nature of the city, but really to preserve the centuries-old wine-growing tradition. You know, John, you probably have to feel quite secure in your legacy that you have someone willing to preserve that tradition after you. And as Alex said, we have to protect this heritage. We have to protect this vineyard land and save it for the future. And it's hard to disagree with that. But of course, I'm not an investor, and I have a biased interest in keeping these wines alive and well.
1: Well, it's not exactly without precedence, as we learned with our Napa episodes, that uh, Land Preservation Act, many of the great vineyards of Napa, are similarly protected from future Development. The main difference here is that we're dealing with a major European capital, a city and not a rural area. But, you know, similar. And, and I'm delighted that there's room for vineyard expansion, another 100 or so hectares in, indeed, as we just learned. So the story continues to evolve. And I guess it hasn't really suppressed land prices too much because uh, it's still quite expensive to buy land, even open fields or vineyards. But, you know, there's still the possibility of leasing vineyards, as Alex was telling us there, which means that some fresh energy can join the landscape and inject some new life into the scene. So, what yet awaits us on the Satz scene?
0: I think that there are some good arguments to be made for field blends, especially in this day and age. You know, they sort of fell out of favor, right? Gemisht or this type of thing, field blends, just generally in the world. And I think.
1: Well, tell us, Sarah, you studied viticulture. (laughs) I mean, they certainly weren't advocating for mixed varietal plantings, were they?
0: Well, no, I don't think so. In fact, you know, it's it's really in the 20th century where we started to see decisions being made on using specific clonal, clonal selection and instituting them, legislating them, and because they were strong and they did well in a particular area. But, you know, field blends are really like insurance. And Alex says this, right? His grandparents had to live from a single plot. And this is the way to ensure that more or less every year they'd be able to harvest the same amount of grapes so you can make your living but you know there's also issues right now issues in terms of global warming and climate change right so planting more late ripening varieties like uh, riesling and ferments within the field blend can allow you to stretch the growing season and hotter vintages and to be able to harvest a more or less the same potential alcohol levels to make a similar wine without putting all of your eggs in one basket so there There are also other issues, for example, when it comes to, to mildew, when it comes to extending the flowering period. There is this sort of biodiversity that attracts things like insects and allows nutrient exchanges between different vines. And I think biodynamic farming has really honed in on that concept, on how biodiversity in the vineyard really helps everything out, right? And you see this with much, you know, you have a flexibility to protect yields and minimize risk as well. It also helps accommodate different vintage conditions, you know, warmer, cooler. Mm. It gives you that kind of homogeneous nature of your wines that is actually a good thing in this situation, right? These vineyards have personalities. There are no two that are the same. The idea of actually making the blend in the vineyard as opposed to an assemblage in the winery. So lots of positives. Yeah,
1: but uh, I mean, I I agree with Fritz in that uh, if you're hand farming your little plot of land, then yes, you can go vine by vine and, and treat each one as an individual plant. But you really can't try and convince me Sarah that this is the most cost efficient way of planting and running a vineyard when you've got all of these different plants ripening at different times. Yes, there are some advantages, but you know, some of some grapes are going to be ripe, some are going to be underripe, some are going to be overripe.
0: Well, true, you know, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. Like if you think of what happens in the northern rhone, you know, they're harvesting viognier and syrah at the same time and they both have and co fermenting them. They both have to different ripening times. And it's okay if one is a little underripe and the other one is a little bit riper. It helps compensate. It helps add intrigue. But you're right. It is, I think it can be more challenging. I actually haven't farmed in that way before.
1: Well, I'm just playing devil's advocate here because you know my opinion on it. I'm I'm fully supportive of the concept, the theory. I've, I've yet to farm, but maybe one day I will farm a field blend. But Quite frankly, I, I think that having varieties ripen at different times, as you said, is not a disadvantage. You know, there's a certain monotony, of a boredom of having every single clone of the mm-hmm. same variety ripen to the same degree with the same range of fruit flavors and acid and tannin profile. You know, isn't it far more interesting to have a symphony of multiple instruments than one single soloist? You know, there's room in the world of wine, obviously, for both, but uh, I think there should be more room in the world for mixed field blends and you know there are the advantages you pointed out climate change dealing with that and and so many other things so i mean will we see more of that in the future certainly in vienna but perhaps also around the world who knows
0: well put john
1: but how how difficult must it have been for for the poor viennese producers trying to sell a, an unpronounceable wine like Gemischte satz in the 90s or even 2000s totally. when everyone was clamoring for gruner you know simple crisp clean white wine from from austria i'm glad to hear though that uh, well both fritz and and uh, alex sell quite a lot of their wine outside of the city walls of Vienna.
0: Yeah, and you know, there's also an argument to be made that these types of blends are more representative of terroir, right? These are the varieties. This is the mix of varieties that does well. This is how they ripen in our terroir, in our climate. And I think it really showcases some of the strengths of the area. But yeah, definitely hard to sell. I like to think of it, you know, as as you would uh, a European appellation where there are a melange of varieties varieties. You don't think about all the great varieties necessarily that are in the, in the blend. You just think about the wine, the gamish.
1: Well, and then again, there's the reality that it's a pretty small region, all things considered, less than 600 hectares currently planted, so I mean, these are wines that will always be available in limited quantities, and it's not really for mainstream drinkers, unless you consider those heutige visitors to be mainstream drinkers, but they're probably spritzing up some, <laughs> some less expensive wines. But, yeah, you know, these are these are wines that will find their market, and I'm really excited to to learn about and to have tasted uh, this growing range of single vineyard expressions and yeah you have to throw out the notion of grape variety because there are too many to count really and now you can just focus on the expression of say the Neusberg or the Bisenberg and the very geology that underlies it and the microclimates that surround the city it's it's really you know as I said diversity piled on top of diversity but is that a bad thing no I think it's something to celebrate I think it's something that we should uh, be excited to uh, discover more what to expect. I don't know. Know the producer.
0: Exactly. Despite all that complexity out there, John, I think we can always still find time for a spritz too, right? So <laughs> from complex to, to simple and pleasurable, there's quite a range.
1: Well, listen, if I see a branch hanging outside a door, I'm <laughs> popping in, I'm going to slurp down some pints of frothy young gemishtasats sitting on the terrace, eating a little plate of charcut overlooking the city of Vienna. And uh, you know what? I'm having a very good time.
0: Maybe you should try that out in Prince Edward County, John, hanging a branch. See if anybody comes to join you.
1: Nobody recognizes my branch.
0: Well, I guess that's enough from us. Join us next week for another riveting episode of Wine Thieves. I'm your co-host, Sarah D'Amato.
1: And I'm John Sabo. Thanks, as always, for listening. See you next time on Wine Thieves. Auf Wiedersehen.